This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello. Thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Bad Movies We Love. I am your host, Nick Scheist, and this is the end of season one. It's season one, episode six, and I had the pleasure of talking with one of the founding members of the Scheist International Film Club, and he brought to us another movie from the 90s that was plagued by its behind-the-scenes stories and its production headaches and a little bit of its cast and its directors and all rolled into one, it's really something. So sit back, relax, kick your feet up, pop in the DVD because we're taking a journey to the island of Dr. Moreau in 1996. I think a lot of the reason that this failed so much is these things are really ugly. Look at my weird hyena body over here. My legs don't work properly. He's never held a gun before. He's got weird, like, cloven hoof hands. Take all of these drugs and just start having a giant animal orgy. Welcome back. All that is just a small taste of what's in store with the island of Dr. Moreau, and I was joined for this episode by one of the founding members of the Scheist International Film Club, Mr. Keith Sexton, and we went ahead and tried recording a little bit differently today. We used Zoom for the first time, and unfortunately the studio mic stopped working in between the practice session and the actual recording session. So the audio quality is not where I want it to be for this episode, but we'll get it figured out for the future and it'll sound a lot better then. It was still a great conversation. Keith still sounds good. It's just me that sounds like crap. So my apologies, but let's get to it. All right, my man Keith, we're here to talk about one of the 90s, most iconically and notoriously disastrous <laughs> adventures in filmmaking. And that is The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1996. Very Razzie worthy. <laughs> Indeed. It was nominated for several. Uh, I saw that. I did. Yep. Uh, I don't know if it won. I was just kind of glancing at the trivia to see how it did. And it was nominated for six. Razzies, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Supporting Actor uh, for both Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. And that says a lot. And I hadn't seen this movie in quite some time. So I decided to sit down and watch it today because I wanted it to be as fresh in my mind as possible. And I remember 
watching it very young, <clears throat> excuse me, because, you know, I was a fan of Al Kilmer in the 90s and he was doing a lot of weird stuff. So, I, you know, I saw weird kind of creepy sci-fi uh, monster movie and was like, all right, I'm in. And it always stood out to me as something that I could never quite pin down. I, I never knew how to react to this movie and I still sort of felt that way watching it today, but uh, why don't you tell me what it was that led you to pick this particular movie for bad movies we love? Uh, first, I would say it all starts with, uh, I'm a big Val Kilmer guy. I love Val Kilmer. When I was, I don't know how old you are, Nick. I'm almost 50 and I seen him. And I want to say it was 1986, maybe 84 or something like that. Top Secret. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. Um, but it's a, it's a slapstick kind of a spoof. And he does so many funny things in there and keeps a straight face uh, that, I, that I loved it. And then a few a couple of years later, he did a movie called Real Genius. A slightly more, still a comedy, but slightly more serious. Uh, once again, a lot of funny parts where he keeps a straight face. And it was just, just my kind of humor, both of them films. And uh, his big, his massive breakout role, as you probably know, was uh, Tombstone, where how he did not get nominated for an Oscar is criminal. I, I have no idea how he didn't get nominated for that. A lot of people say that. Uh, but the year before Tombstone, he did a really sneaky, good little film called Thunderheart, set on an Indian reservation. And uh, so it was just a string of Val Kilmer films. That I was like, I really, you know, I like this actor a lot. And as you already know, I'm also a big time fan of classic films. And so you got Val Kilmer paired with Marlon Brando. And for me, it was What Can Go Wrong. Um, I know they, I see that they each got the Razzie nom for their acting, but I liked both of them in this film. I, I don't see uh, a problem with either of them in this film, really. I thought the lead at the time was a little weak. Uh, David Thewlis, uh, you know, he was a little spotty. But uh, I've come to like him, too. I don't know. I'm not a Harry Potter guy. I understand he's in Harry Potter a lot. But uh, <laughs> if you happen to watch any of Netflix's, um, uh, I forget what show he's in or what it's called right now. Um, the Sandman, that's it. And he, he has a he has a great role in the Sandman. And I like him a lot now. So but uh, yeah, but anyway, it more or less starts with Val Kilmer for me. And that's fair enough. I'm to answer your question, I'm 38. And the first thing that I saw Val Kilmer in was probably Top Gun, but uh I was exposed to real genius at a fairly young age as well. And of course, Willow was, you know, a big film during my childhood. So by the time that Tombstone had come out, uh, he had already done the Doors movie as Jim Morrison. And that was right before Batman Forever, before he like, okay, now he's officially over because of Tombstone. Um, he was in True Romance also, but I was yes. a Val Kilmer fan from like his 80s work and then followed it into the 90s. And I mean, another movie that came out in 96 that he did, Ghost in the Darkness, I still uh, am very fond of. I haven't seen it in a while, but the last time I watched it, I still felt that it was uh, 
a well done kind of thriller in that setting. So I would kind of like keep my eye on anything he did. And that led me to this film. And, you know, I probably shouldn't have been watching this in 96. It was, I mean, I was old enough technically, but it was way over my head. And the first thing that struck me in turning the film on is the opening credit sequence they did here featured. I made a little note about that myself, but yeah. you go ahead. I did a note about that. It features a lot of uh, like gene splicing footage, I want to say. Uh, <laughs> I, and very rapid fire. Track. Yeah. So it tells you that it's going to be an intense thriller that's based on science loosely a little bit. Um, and so I was like, I haven't seen this in a while. I don't know if this is going to reflect on like what the film actually is or if they just wanted to spend money to let you know like when you got in the theater like we put the effort in to do this because uh there's some other stuff that we'll get into but you had mentioned uh david thulis uh in the lead and he was not the first person brought no, in no. Uh, for the lead on this film and uh the initial director richard stanley also left the project and i mean basically everybody was very close to either leaving or <laughs> not wanting to work on it in some capacity and there was a lot of finger pointing in a lot of directions but it was uh Rob Morrow was the one who officially left the project to allow David Thewlis in, but I think it was Bruce Willis that turned down the role initially because he was going through his divorce yeah. at the time and it was just going to be too much. Um, and that opened the door to then Val Kilmer stepping into the lead role, but he apparently was having some other issues and didn't want to be on set. So they moved him into the supporting role, which then reopened the lead role again, which also kicked James Woods out of the supporting position and brought in Rob Morrow. So there was just a lot of pre-production hurdles that surrounded this film. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I wanted to grab the trailer here because I haven't seen the trailer for this since you know, I was like 12 years old. So mm -hmm. I want to take a look at that and see what kind of sales pitch they had for this movie. Yeah, I never saw the trailer. Or at least not that I can remember. Let me grab that. And I knew you had done your homework on this, though, and the, the making of this. I don't know if you, if you caught this, but the making was just so catastrophic. There's actually a documentary on how bad the making of it was. Yeah, I do actually want to see that documentary, and I'm sad that I didn't get a chance to go ahead and watch it before uh, we did this. But yeah, it was a 2014 documentary, I believe, and it's called Lost Souls, if I'm not mistaken, the making of Island of Dr. Moreau or something like that. Um, yeah. I did not see it. Yeah, I didn't see it either, but now I'm very curious to watch it because I did watch the Val documentary. Likewise. And, yeah, and he had some behind-the-scene footage, and you could tell that he had a contentious uh, relationship with uh, the director who stepped in after Richard Stanley, John Frankenheimer. And, you know, he's an old-school Hollywood director, and they had very different ideas of what 
the production was supposed to be. So, well, I kind of got a sense watching that Val documentary that uh, Val Kilmer kind of regretted his uh, his own behavior. He kind of like did all but apologize there in that, and you know he released footage of him acting like a prima donna. You know, uh, he did. He was he was a bit of a a bit of a, um, a bit of a diva. Yeah, and I mean he's coming off of the success of Tombstone and Top Gun at this point in his career, and you know he's brought in to this movie to be one of the sales points. And I actually read an interesting story that Richard Stanley had basically an emotional breakdown after being let go from this film, but he stayed in Australia nearby the production and ended up getting in touch with other people on the production crew who had also been let go or who were staying nearby. And so he stayed in touch with some of the people and the story is that they brought him back to set and put him in full makeup and had him as an extra, as one of the dog people. <laughs> and he is in the movie that way. Right. And, I saw that as well. Yeah. And the story was confirmed by multiple people and went on to say that he showed up at the rap party for the film and spoke to Val Kilmer and Kilmer supposedly apologized to him at the rap party for some of the stuff that had gone down. Plus, I also think Val Kilmer kind of, kind of, he kind of worshipped Marlon Brando a little bit. And I think he wanted to, to be the equal pain in the ass that Brando is known to be. Yeah, that's fair. And they supposedly had a little bit of a rivalry going on as well during the filming. And I don't know how, I don't know how accurate it is because they both sort of denied it uh, in in one sense or another, but they were rumored to have been fighting for much of the production and refusing to come out of their uh, their dressing room. I, I read that as well, and I don't know how much I believe that really, because um, from what I can see, they they were friends after this. They, you know, I've read other magazines and such the dialogue between them offset like for years even was just fine you know they they were friends really friendly with each other and appreciated each other so i I don't i don't know how much i believe that yeah it's interesting because it's a lot of obviously third-hand accounts of exactly uh what happened between the two of them and there's some quotes thrown around but they're not really attributed uh to anybody in particular, uh, at least the source material is not attributed well. So it's kind of hard to say what exactly happened, but there is a point in the film where with everything going on and with a lot of supposed improvisation going on on set as well, where we run into Val Kilmer dressed as Marlon Brando's character, doing a full-on Brando impression Uh, And I don't know if it was scripted, but it is very striking in that moment that that it would speak to them being friends to some extent. But if you wanted to look at it from the other side, you could easily say that that was something that was part of the contentious nature of their relationship. Sure. And if you believe the IMDB notes, Val Kilmer asked for permission to do that from, from Marlon Brando himself. So. Yeah. Again, who knows what to believe. And, you know, another reason I don't necessarily believe the bad blood thing is 
because every single movie it seems like uh you hear val kilmer hating his co-stars like you heard it with uh, batman forever with jim carrey mm -hmm. but then later on in life you know you see an interview with jim carrey saying that you know kilmer is great um michael douglas same thing in the ghost in the darkness you know i once read a quote that the, he said the lions were more prepared to act than Val Kilmer or something. But, you know, when Val Kilmer had his cancer going on and uh, Michael Douglas was the first one there with his condolences and how, you know, just say how much, you know, they, they liked each other and such. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Hollywood's weird like that, where, you know, there's obviously a lot of egos involved. And when there's two people with big names, both fighting for billing issues, I mean, it happened a lot. Uh, earlier in Hollywood where certain guys were contracted to certain studios and had it in their contracts that I have to be top billing. And that stuff is known to have happened in the past. Oh, sure. um, Absolutely. But, you know, from what I've seen from Val Kilmer, like over the course of his career, he seems to be a fairly likable guy. And, you know, I'm, all of us probably acted uh, less desirably uh, in our twenties than we wanted to at certain times, but I, yeah, I don't see anybody like still now saying anything bad about Kilmer, even before he had cancer. Um, and I actually went to see his uh, stage play Citizen Twain when it was here at the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, I, bet, I bet that was really good. It was really good. And like just watching how hard he fought to get that project developed and what he went through to make sure that it got the kind of theatrical presence that he wanted and all the work that he put into that. I'm like, this is someone who really clearly cares about the stories that he is involved in telling. And sure. as a co-star of his, I mean, you know, you see it maybe with like a guy like Christian Bale, who's very intense on set, but for the most part, like I don't really hear people bad-mouthing Christian Bale as a co-worker, right? No, you know, it's like when athletes get together and they hate each other during the game or something, you know, they talk fondly of each other after and it's, it's just business, you know? Before we rewind and replay the trailer, I want to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor for this episode of Bad Movies We Love, Monty's Rejuvenating Serum. Let's face it, there are days when we all wake up feeling a bit beastly and a lot of the time we look the part too, but Looking like an animal is a thing of the past thanks to Monty's carefully crafted blend of only organic plant oils and the finest specimens of animal DNA fresh from Queensland, Australia. All of the raw ingredients are brought in by boat to Monty's undisclosed island location where the secret ingredient is added to the final product at the company's repurposed World War II era compound. Monty's Rejuvenating Serum has been rigorously tested on the local wildlife population and many other unwitting passers-by to ensure that you get the best possible product for your hard-earned dollar. Backed by a 100% money-back guarantee, it's clinically proven to make you look younger, feel better, and fight the first signs of regression before it starts. Did I mention, it also offers both UVA and UVB protection, so you can enjoy your time in the sun without worry. If you're not completely satisfied, Monty's will even fly you and a guest on an all-expenses-paid trip to their facility for a free consultation with their lead geneticist. So, what have you got to lose? It's topical. It's tropical. It's Monty's Rejuvenating Serum. All right, let's do it. 
man. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the eighth day, in the year 2010, in a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible. I didn't realize this was set in 2010. Yeah. Me neither. I don't believe it was ever said that. On the island of Dr. Moreau. I'd like to present my children. Father? Oh my God. From director John Frankenheimer. Most terrifying creations about the line that separates man from beast and the notorious doctor who dared to cross it. We are men because the father has made us men. Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, David Thewlis. So there you go. They still have Brando and Kilmer as top billing, and Frankenheimer is repeated there again as the director, despite uh, obviously coming on, I think it was a couple weeks into the production. So they're selling you on the parts of the film more so than the film itself. It's like, based on this novel, this director, these actors, and then animal men uh, in the future uh, okay uh, yeah frankenheimer come on the so, only thing i remember from that trailer is that very last scene with the uh, the you know the beast's face so close to david ulysses that's that i do remember that and i remember that from you know 1996. i remember like seeing the animal like creatures and thinking it was a horror film and i don't know that it's not but in watching it today, I was like, I don't know that it is either. There's moments where it's kind of starting to get there and it never like got over the hump for me. It kind of pulled back right at the moment where it could be a very frightening kind of like science fiction horror film and instead lands somewhere in like monster thriller range, I would say. I think a lot of the reason that this failed so much is these these things are really ugly. Uh, yeah, you know the one giving birth that was you know Planet of the Apes, <laughs> gorgeous people compared to this. Uh, there, like a lot of the characters that are you know half animal still are not pleasant to look at. They're they're uncomfortable to look at. Yeah, that's definitely true. And they, um, the production team went to Stan Winston for the creature effects and the makeup. And it's really one of the strongest elements of the film is that across all of the different kinds of animal characters where you have, what, uh, hundreds of extras probably? 
in total for this film maybe maybe you know six seven dozen on the low side but there's a lot of scenes where there's a lot of people in full makeup and they all have to look slightly different and this is all crafted with real makeup real prosthetics and just the sheer amount of work that that took to make it look halfway decent and have it be effective at least in the key roles uh, is definitely one of the strong suits of the film and it maybe doesn't get enough credit because like you said they're really hideous to look at and that particular scene you mentioned where he first goes wandering around the uh, the compound and decides to go into like the very clearly marked off science lab where he shouldn't be and he sees uh, them I guess doing like a live birth on this weird creature um, I don't even know what kind of creature it was it's just like we're, we're gonna go with the most disgusting looking thing possible it's gonna have hooves it's gonna have six droopy six nipples yeah uh, <laughs> so they, they really wanted to kind of like shock your system when you see that the first time and it definitely does a good job of that and aside from a couple of instances where they used CGI to do some things they couldn't do otherwise, it really is a fantastic job of practical effects throughout the whole production. Yeah, I, know, I agree. Um, I like when the scene where David Thewlis is sitting in Marlon Brando's little uh, shack there being introduced to his family. And... Yeah. Uh, you know, and you stop and you look at the everyone in the family, and man, they are hideous. You know, and he says it right there. He says this is satanic. You know, yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I thought I thought David Thewlis is, was so much stronger in the middle of the movie than he was at the beginning or the end. His his acting. Yeah, and, I think that's fair. And since you said that, I wanted to bring up his character introduction because this movie has like a very cold open, just out in the middle of the water with a voiceover and it's just like, here's enough exposition to get you to the point that we're at right here in the water. Like they don't start with a plane crash cause like we can't afford any of that, but we're gonna let you know that there was a plane crash and that there's some other people that survived but we don't really wanna give them dialogue either. So they're gonna kill each other off here in the first few minutes. Uh, and the the weakest very, guy in the bunch is going to be the one that survives. A very convenient shark. <laughs> see, as soon as they go in the water, <laughs> right? I was like, oh well, this guy's bleeding. There's definitely going to be a shark here somewhere. The shark takes care of the rest. But in watching it front to back, the movie is bookended by two different like retellings of the same theme of like. The animal nature of man so you mm -hmm. see in the very beginning this fight for survival between these three and when it comes down to like the last bit of water they start killing each other for it and then when you get to the very end i think he's taking us out with voiceover again and they're they're cutting to some b-roll of some other stuff and it's again about like what mankind is willing to do to each other and like kind of like who's the real animals here right um and that's a theme that permeates all the way down to like what Moreau himself is doing on the island because there's some moments where he deifies himself and I mean it's done on screen before he does it to himself when we first get introduced to him you have the weird blind goat priest 
talking about like the father and like the laws of man, et cetera. And then Marlon Brando, uh, his Moreau is introduced <clears throat> on the back of a Jeep, I think in what looks kind of like the Pope mobile and he's wearing all white and he's very shrouded and, you know, they bow down to him. And then when they don't, he punishes them and like hits him with the little electric zapper he's got in all of his creatures but they go from that to him introducing himself to the doctor. Uh, what is it? The character's name, Douglas. So he's introducing himself to Douglas and we're kind of like learning about what he's really doing on the island. And he elevates the status of what he's doing to this level of. It's actually uh, Edward Douglas. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, you're right. Um Edward Douglas is the lead character, but he's listed here as Douglas. So I just grabbed oh, it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, he, Moreau, that is, he kind of like has this grandiosity of what he's doing, that he's doing it for the right reasons, that he wants to get rid of the imperfections of man. <clears throat> he goes as far as to say that he has seen the uh devil under the microscope in these imperfections and he's willing or he's able to finally eliminate that and i don't know in that moment <clears throat> if he believes what he is saying or if this is his sales pitch to people that are being introduced to it because if he really believed that what he was doing was eliminating satan and fixing imperfections then why did he install control devices into all of these creatures that he has living on his island and then that ends up playing out uh before his demise uh, his very brutal demise he gets caught in well he comes down into his living room and he, there's a bunch of creatures in there uh and they've freed themselves from the electrocution device and even before he realizes that that's the case he is very hesitant borderline afraid of them because he knows what he's done so i thought it was very interesting to see both sides of that same coin of where he feels like he's justified and like he's a god for what he's done and that he's doing this thing that's righteous but then faced with his own creations in uh an uncontrolled environment he becomes very afraid very quickly and so that tells me that the entire time like he knew what he was doing was not above board i got the impression that his heart was in the right place um he, he, you know when he says you know he's trying to you know eliminate the imperfections and make the perfect race i think he was trying to do that and i i think his heart was in the right place uh as far as having to install microchips i think we would have to realize what he's doing and what he's seen in the 17 years of doing this, nobody else in the world was seen. So if there is some way that he has to regulate them, I think as the viewer, we should probably, I guess I would take his word for it, that, that he, he would know that they have to be regulated from 
what he's done and seen. I, I, I don't know. I just I thought his heart was in the right place because every scene he was in, I, I, I didn't see any, uh, any bad intent. That's interesting. I guess when I was introduced to him trying to create like the perfect race, I was like, that's very Hitlery. And to me, like, you know, I don't look at that as something that is coming from the right place. I think maybe in his own like twisted vision of it, he sees it that way. So I guess, yeah, within the bubble of how he operates, he doesn't look at it like this is something that I'm doing for the wrong reasons. And I don't know if they ever talk about like his children being his actual children because there's never a mother brought into it. Um, And only one of them looks human still. So it's tough to really tell like, is this his actual daughter? Like, did he really uh, do genetic experimentation on his daughter and his other children? Because if that's the case, then like, you're really not a great dad either. But I think he is supposed to come across as someone who is a crazy person and someone like uh, Edward Douglas who comes in out of the blue and is being exposed to this for the first time like it strikes him right away like yeah what you're doing is like monstrous it's barbaric it's satanic like this is the craziest shit i've ever seen he says at one point i think not i'm paraphrasing of course but something along those lines i thought when uh we first meet edward and val is driving him into the compound area there's a moment where they take the rabbits off of the boat and he's bringing the rabbits uh, to their new enclosure mm-hmm. and Edward's telling him a story about having a rabbit as a kid and how that uh, rabbit ended up dying due to his, his own, own neglect yeah. and I I felt that like this is in the story for a reason and I don't know if it ever landed quite in the way that I thought it would but it seemed like kind of to parallel Moreau's position or maybe even uh, Montgomery's position of being like the caretaker of these animals and then neglecting like their real needs leads them down the road that ultimately like sets the whole camp on fire. I I took it as just another step uh, towards the climax, uh, another step of uh, uneasiness towards the climax, the climax being him being locked in his room. That's oh, when yeah, you good know, point, good point. Th- that's that's when you know the shit hits the fan, you know? Yeah, he's trusting of this person who, I mean, in that moment when we're first introduced to him, Montgomery is his caretaker. He's rescued him from the ocean. He's, you know, taking care of whatever wounds he had on the boat. He's gotten him off the boat where he tells him that, like, hey, these guys are pirates and maybe they're going to, like, start sex trafficking you if you don't get off the boat with me. And... Then he brings him to the compound, basically uh, assures him that everything's going to be okay. And then it's like, oh, surprise, you're a prisoner and it's for your own good. Did you pick up on Marlon Brando having a fake set of teeth in this or was that just me? Uh, I know his teeth were odd, but I know it was also later, later in life. So, no, I didn't pick up that they were fake. Yeah, I don't know if they were, but it just I certainly picked up that they were less than, than stellar. Yeah, like the way his mouth was positioned felt to me, I'm like, it feels like he's wearing a prosthetic. And like, there were many other people like in the film wearing prosthetics in their mouth as well. So it wouldn't have been like 
completely crazy to have had Brando be like, this is something that I want for my character because him and Richard Stanley had initially, you know, rallied for this film to get made and him attaching himself to the project was one of the biggest reasons for it. And I heard that, you know, he didn't want to learn his lines. So there was a lot of improv going on as well. So I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility. I would have to look uh, a little bit deeper into it, but I just, I kept noticing, like, it seems like he's very like focused on like the way his mouth moves when he's talking. So I've, I've seen that before. And speaking of bad teeth, as I was watching uh, him play his piano duet with the little worm guy, Majai, yeah. I was like, this is where Mini-Me came from in Austin Powers. And yeah. sure enough, I ended up reading after the fact that Mike Myers has said that like that is the direct influence of where he ended up uh, picking up Mini-Me. And that moment where they have the piano duet is just such a strange but endearing moment at the same time like it shows you that there's at least a hierarchy to uh dr moreau's structure where it's like he's got his family that they essentially all work for him but they have higher positions within the um the animal kingdom than some of the other ones there's the group of animals that live basically it looks like they're surrounded by nuclear waste and they live underground. There's a lot of plane wreckage around. So they're kind of just like scraping by on remnants from the war that are still left on the Island for them to salvage. But then there's the other animals that kind of work and live around the complex and help him in his experiments. And just seeing that there is like some sort of structure makes me think that uh, he is able to distinguish like the traits in the kind of uh, creations that he has around him. You know, he wants them to be subservient, maybe without having to electrocute them all the time, but that isn't always the case. Sure, and I think he's got a lot that are in different stages. Yeah. Um, Very early, they tell Douglas that they don't have, uh, they don't eat meat on the island. So everything's going to be vegetarian and they make kind of a big deal of the rabbit being brought out to Montgomery at the dinner table and Dr. Moreau being disgusted with it. But I'm also curious what, I mean, Dr. Moreau is a scientist. He's into gene splicing. He's got a bunch of wild animals. Like he mixed the man with a cheetah. Did he really think this guy was going to be a vegetarian? That's a great question. <laughs> so like, it just seems like the natural thing would be to let them eat meat. So maybe it was just a, a measure of control, right? He, he's got the priest that preaches the laws of like, we're going to eat no meat, eat no fish, something along those lines. But these are all animals, not all of them, but a large amount of the animals are meat eaters. And even his son in that scene where he serves the cooked rabbit to Montgomery, like he licks his fingers. Cause he's like, Oh man, like I haven't tasted like, animal before and so he's really enjoying it and the smell of it and i think they're that scene later when the they're roasting like the dead body of lome is that the the, Lomar, yeah. the cheetah man's name yeah when they're roasting him he kind of sits there by 
the furnace and just like smells him roasting and seems to enjoy it quite thoroughly. But yeah, Lomai is the the cheetah guy who was punished very harshly for eating a rabbit in the wild. Yet there's a bunch of rabbits on the island for some reason. Well, I don't know. Is there a bunch of rabbits? Because Val Kilmer killed the one that was right. And I don't know if you saw this or if you noticed this when he was unloading the rabbits. One clearly got away. Yes. At the bottom of the screen. I took it to be it was that rabbit. Yeah. I, I don't know, though. Yeah, I think that holds up because we only see the one later that got eaten. I know there's a point uh, a little bit after that as well where the hyena man has like a rabbit's head and I think someone else brings him another chunk of rabbit or something. But yes, Val was very cavalier with uh, his transfer of the rabbits into their new uh, feeding complex. And it was just interesting going back to Lomai eating the rabbit was that he is almost like he's more fully animal than a lot of them and that he doesn't wear clothes right where a lot of them are they're not human but they're they're humanized and well that's what i mean we got a whole bunch at all different all different stages yeah so i mean he can still like talk a little bit and like he's still aware but he's the most animalistic of all of the creatures that we see other than the weird thing on the table giving birth and you know, once he was subdued, it seemed like Moreau was okay to just let him go. And uh, his right. son was played by Tamora Morrison, so Boba Fett. Jango uh, Jango Fett. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he uses a, like a compression gun and just like puts a bolt right in his head. Right. And even says to his father, like, I thought you wanted me to uphold the laws. So it goes back to kind of like the theocracy that's in place on that island with Moreau being God, his children essentially being his like first line of priests or disciples. And they're the ones who are really tasked with enforcing his power structure more so than he himself. Like, yeah, he's got the little button and everything, but that's only when he shows up in public and everybody's there for him to actually use the button against or as self-defense if he feels threatened, like he was attempting to do in his home near the piano. But for the most part, it's, yeah, his kids that are his uh, lieutenants, his generals that enforce the structure along with Montgomery around the island. I did not realize that this was Ron Perlman playing the blind uh Mm -hmm. i kept trying to pick him i was like everyone's makeup is so good i had a really tough time like figuring out like which guy was i couldn't i'm I'm with you i couldn't tell if he was the hyena or the or the 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 father yeah it, it took me a while and then very late it was like i saw like he was looking up somewhere and i just like heard the voice and i was like oh okay that's him because a lot of the other animals are all like very guttural in their delivery and i kind of thought for a second i was like maybe i should watch this with subtitles on just because that way if i miss something important uh i'll be able to at least see what he said uh it didn't end up being the whole or it didn't end up being a, a large problem for me in that sense. But there are a lot of moments where I don't exactly know what the uh, hyena, hyena swine is saying. Yeah, I did watch it with subtitles. Um, 
for whatever reason, I got in the habit of my kids being a pain in the ass and not being able to hear the TV so well that I've always had <laughs> subtitles on. Did you did you think you picked up anything in the subtitles that you maybe hadn't seen when you know you were first uh, introduced to this film? No, but then again, when I was first introduced, it was you know twenty five years ago now. Yeah. So, uh, I oh I know what I wanted to say earlier about the daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, are are we supposed to believe that she started out as human, or is she the most advanced? Because when her teeth are coming in, she says, I'm regressing. Mm-hmm. So if she's regressing the, and heading back towards an animal, that, that, that part I, I still don't quite get. I mean, and, and, if, and if she did start out as an animal, well, that's pretty miraculous that she's... <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the sci-fi gets a little, like, wishy-washy with the actual science of it, and... The only like frame of reference I have for that is uh, Douglas's character in that they are apparently experimenting on him. He is starting as a human. So it's quite possible that they're trying to inject animal DNA to see if that they can cure some of those things under the microscope that Dr. Moreau said were imperfections. Yeah. We'll never know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it would make sense because there are some other films about kind of like gene splicing and Jurassic Park is another movie that uses uh, different animal DNA to correct those sort of problems. But you're right in that. I don't know. We never see like what her, most regressed form is right like she gets a little toothy we see her like swinging some claws here and there yeah getting a little cabby yeah and then she just sort of dies unceremoniously and we see her shadow uh as she is hanged by the the now inhibitor chip free animal population so they take out their frustrations on the family members that clearly were treated better than the rest of them. And they use them as a means to an end as hyena man is putting together his army, the son, Tamora Morrison, he kind of goes along with them for a while. Cause he wants to chip out too. And he obviously feels that he is closer to them than he is to Dr. Moreau. But at the end, it's like, I'm sorry, you're still, you're still one of them. Like you're still almost a man. Like look at my weird hyena body over here. My legs don't work properly. You know, (laughs) he's got a weird limp to him the whole time, which if I'm being honest, like Daniel Rigney, who played the hyena swine, like his physical acting in this movie was fantastic. Like he didn't strike me as, Oh, this guy's a hyena, but like you could tell that he played the character with like pain in his body. Like the process that he went through to be, hyena swine took its toll on him and he walks with like a weird funny limp and even when he's jumping around and it's not cgi like the way his body is held almost feels like he's compressed and in pain the whole time so it makes him a much more sympathetic character because he physically looks like he's always going through it and then to drive that home like they kill who someone who appears to be his best friend or at least they play it off that way and it's that moment that's the catalyst for him to really like want to fight back 
it's probably been brewing for a long time but in that moment where that uh the son a, a zezello i guess that's a play on azazel he ends up taking his revenge on him far down the line after he gives him access uh to the gun which he you know proceeds to shoot val kilmer's dead body with a bunch of time and moving beyond that one of my favorite scenes in the movie is hyena swine getting his hands on the ak-47 for the first time and just going batshit crazy and shooting everything in sight uh he seems to have so much fun getting an automatic weapon for the first time that he just goes into Moreau's office or living room, wherever it was, and just starts spraying the whole office down in a giant circle. And <laughs> as I'm watching it, uh, it seems like there's, you know, 200 bullets in this clip because it just keeps going for a while. But you'll, you'll notice that all of the other armed animals are just like ducking for cover as he spins around in a circle and just blows the shit out of everything in that room. And he goes on to continue using automatic weapons throughout the whole rest of the movie at that point. And he's not a good shot at all because of course he's never held a gun before. He's got weird like cloven hoof hands, but he just blasts uh, willy nilly at anybody that crosses him the wrong way. And it's ultimately his own ambition kind of that gets in the way and allows Douglas to, trick him into firing on his lieutenants in that situation and i thought it was an interesting character arc to go from being the sympathetic victim of dr moreau to being the villain basically at the end and what he wants in the end is to be what dr moreau was he wants the the torture device to control all the rest of the animals he wants uh to be the new version of the law he mm -hmm. wants douglas to say that he is the new god and so i just found it very interesting for like his character to actually have that full of an arc to go from someone that you can look at it one way and see hey i feel bad for hyena man because he's tortured his friend is died at this point he's a weird abomination where he actually asks him like what am i like i'm not a man i'm not an animal like i'm this weird in-between thing and like just the torture that comes along with like not understanding like your place in the world or your purpose like i think that's a very universal thing and then for him to take that and then like get his hands on some guns and all of a sudden like now he's crazy power hungry and he's completely flipped the switch to where Douglas is like, well, if you want to be number one guy, you got to kill number two and number three God. And that just opens the window enough for uh, for him to escape in that situation. Yeah, uh, he uh, tried to seize his own power right away. Yeah. He did. Is there a scene in this movie where you're watching it and you're like, this is my favorite scene? I like the introduction of Val Kilmer on the boat. You know, I like when he, I like uh, when Edward says, "Are you a doctor?" And he responds with, well, "I'm more like a vet." Yeah. And I just thought in that moment Val Kilmer was nailing it. Um, when he gets off, and if you'll notice, and this is the part you know, as I said, because I love the classic films. Uh, Douglas says something to him about the rest of the Islanders, 
And Val Kilmer responds in a Marlon Brando voice, the Islanders. Mm. And only the regular viewer wouldn't know. But, you know, if you if you know Brando ahead of time, you know, it's, it's almost ominous that he's referring to uh, Dr. Moreau there in Marlon Brando's voice. You know, the, the world knows Marlon Brando's voice and when somebody's imitating it, you know. And he clearly was on the dock there. And like I said, leading up to that, everything to make um, him uneasy leading up to that moment where he gets locked in his room. Um, obviously, the Val Kilmer scene mocking Marlon Brando, um, you know, mocking Dr. Moreau, I should say, was a great scene that I enjoyed. Um, I guess there wasn't one where I just thought was the scene of the film, but I really enjoyed any scene Val Kilmer was in and any scene Marlon Brando was in, and I'm not sure why they would have got Razzie nominations for their performance. I didn't, I just, I thought Val Kilmer was spot on. Um, his little comedic touches of when, when he gave uh, Douglas the gun <laughs> and he takes off running after he hands the gun over. Um, you know, his little comedic touches. And I thought Brando, for the most part, was uh, just played a really sincere guy. And what was so unlikable about that to people, I don't know. Once again, I just revert back to the ugliness of the animals and think that people were uh, put off by it, you know. Um, the movie was quick, an hour and a half, easy breezy, I thought, over before you knew it. Uh, actually, I, and I thought it was kind of better like that, actually. You know, if it was two hours, I could see why some people would complain. You know, unless it was a half an hour of greatness in there somewhere, but... But no, I, I uh, no, I always stuck up for for Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando in this film. I thought they were both really good. I think ultimately for me, like they're just both out of place a little bit because the movie had so many issues with switching directors, switching scripts, rewrites. Like just the tone of the movie is all over the place, and it's really hard for anybody to really nail it and i mean feruza balk essentially walked off the set here after uh, i think richard stanley left initially and she had to be you know driven back across the country uh in a limo to finish the shooting here and they threatened her like if you don't finish your contract right. here, you're never going to work again so i think a lot of that stuff that was going on on set just spilled over into what we see on camera and as a big Val Kilmer fan like the moments where he gets to kind of just like have the most fun he's good but I think the vast majority of his performance I would say is one of the lesser Val Kilmer performances for me personally I was just watching it I'm like it doesn't seem to take advantage too much of like how good of an actor he actually is he's just like going through the moments a little bit and then when they kind of open it up for him to like really be the character there are some big like great moments and one of those is my favorite scene in the film, which let me see if I can share that with you here. It's his death scene, but his death scene, right? Yeah, but I still felt like it was probably the one that I thought was a glimpse at the character that 
probably should have been there much sooner in the film because by the time we get to it here it's like this is the guy that I wanted to see throughout the whole film but you really buried the lead and like gave me a lot of this like English doctor that uh isn't bad at all but he's just like uncharismatic and they kind of keep the handcuffs on Val with him being mostly an uncharismatic character in the majority of his scenes and if he really wasn't available to shoot as much as rumor had it that makes a lot of sense because I think they said that he was only going to make himself available for like 40 percent of the shooting schedule so they moved him into that supporting role and then if that really is the case then I could see the directors like not wanting to embellish uh, certain scenes with him. I know that I, I, a much happier seeing Val Kilmer as Montgomery than I think I would have been seeing him in the lead, actually. I don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right there. I mean, Montgomery is a more interesting character, but this movie doesn't allow him enough time at 96 minutes or whatever to really like get into his motivations for why he's there with Moreau. Like you could focus the scope of the film more narrowly through what it was that brought him to the island in the first place. He says that he wrote like a research paper. They started a correspondence. I've been here for 10 years. Okay, now get in your cage. And I felt that it was just like, there isn't enough there for me to wrap my head around to get to the point where I'm like, why is this guy participating? Like he doesn't really ever communicate why he believes in what Moreau is doing other than he seems to enjoy it as well. Right, he says, you know, he, he says um, Moreau was there for 17 years and he got there 10 years ago. And, you know, I just get the impression that like you just said, he must have uh, enjoyed it and wanted to keep being a part of well, to be a part of making history, I suppose. Yeah, and even something as small as that of like, you know, they 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 show that uh, Moreau had won a Nobel Prize and the line of dialogue that accompanies that is he invented Velcro. Now, I don't know if that is intended to be a joke or if it's intended to be the truth that his invention of Velcro afforded him the opportunity to really get into the kind of genetic science that he wanted to do. But it, it almost seems like a line that was there. And then it just became like a throwaway with the rest of like how the story was going. So in watching it, did you interpret it as something that he was saying uh, in earnest? I interpreted it as in earnest. Yes. Uh, but, you know, now that you mentioned it, we could have looked at, you know, you could have been looked at it anyway. Uh, no, I, I interpreted it in earnest. Now that you say that, it might have been more funnier if he didn't mean it. Yeah, because I'm thinking it's like, all right, I already know like that there's genetic experimentation going on on this island. And uh, Edward Douglas does not at that point. So Val's character is almost like an unreliable narrator for us very early in the story. And so him knowing that everything that goes on on the island is, you know, genetic mutation stuff. and him being very familiar with what Moreau does, I could very easily see the character that we saw in the film being, you know, kind of flipping about it, like, oh, he invented Velcro. Like, you don't know what's happening here, so I can give you any answer. 
and it's passable. And so I was just curious uh, what your take on that was, but here is my favorite Val Kilmer scene in the film. And it's really where he gets to be the most eccentric version of his character. Well, maybe the second most behind his Brando impersonation, but he's still kind of in that mode here. So bring it in. Got like party music here. He's coming down to the weird animal uh, dance hall. interesting here to see that also the the animals that are remaining in the wake of Moreau's death are still treating him with reverence to some degree when they don't have to and then I realize he's giving them basically uh, like MDMA or drugs he's just drugging the shit out of them he shows up he's like here take all of these drugs and just start having a giant animal orgy well, even earlier in the film, when he's uh, administering shots or whatever, it seemed like he was always pleasant with all of them. You know, like like he cared about them as well. So, you know, I didn't get the uh, impression that any of them would hate him. Yeah, I don't necessarily know that I would expect them to hate him, but they, I mean, they they kill him very shortly after this, so obviously they don't like him that much. It was just well, maybe the difference between the the character that is Moreau's son and kind of like the lower level animals where he basically administers like vaccinations to them on a regular basis. I mean, obviously the one who, who, who kills him is a conflicted soul. into a different one now. Let me stop that. So yeah, I would have liked to see more of Val Kilmer in a more prominent role, I guess, is what I would hope for. Because um, I mean, like even Brando, I remember like he doesn't make it to the end, but I was surprised to see the moment in the film like where he dies. I'm like, this is fairly early on. It's around like the two thirds yeah. mark. And I was like, okay, like... I remembered it happening and I remembered it being violent and it is incredibly violent. And supposedly the director's cut that's four minutes longer has more violence in that scene and a couple other things. But I mean, if you're really going to make a director's cut that's four minutes longer, like what's the point of that? 
Yeah, I do remember actually being in the theater thinking, well, Brando's dead. Now Kilmer's dead. The other guy has to carry the rest of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he he tries, but then like Feruza Balk is dead as well. So it's like all the supporting cast dies off and he's left with a bunch of guys in costume wielding automatic weapons and not really having uh, much to work off in terms of like other actors. And so it's kind of fitting that like the movie just ends with him going back out to see the way he came. And the last line in the film is uh, I go in fear. Yeah, Mm. and I go in fear. So, and it's not even, it's not a commentary on the island or somebody finding the island. It's more of a commentary on like his fear of the destructive animal nature of man as he goes back out into the world. And I think that's really like the theme that ties the front and the back of this film together. And there's a lot of things to take away from this film in it being enjoyable. Like I was watching this, just knowing like a lot of the stuff that happened behind the cameras and thinking like, you can kind of just see how this production was troubled and nothing really feels super cohesive throughout it, but I still had fun watching it. I was still just like blown away by the idea that they were trying to present all of the extensive prosthetic work that they did. And they're doing this like in the Australian jungle, no less. So it's super hot outside for all these extras to be wearing makeup all the time. And there was like stories of Brando, like just staying in his trailer and enjoying the air conditioning when this was going on. So there's all kinds of these crazy stories from this movie. And it's one of those films that I think similar to the last movie we did in wild wild west, where it's a really interesting example of what was happening in filmmaking in the nineties in that there was still this mix of, old Hollywood represented by Brando here in that this is we have this kind of like star power attached to this film but we're going to try this and tell this really ambitious sci-fi horror story that uh, is you know a remake of another film it's based on an H.G. Wells novel so there's connective tissue to older Hollywood history as well but you're bringing in a guy in Val Kilmer who that flavor of the month is not like the right way to put it but like he was a hot commodity in Hollywood he was on the, 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 was on the rise at the time for sure exactly so they're trying to blend like the old school and the new school together and nobody seemed to want to tell them no in the beginning And then once things got rolling, there was no way to stop it. And it's just a very interesting time in filmmaking because as I talked to IO when we did the Wild Wild West episode, like they had the entire Batgirl movie finished at Warner Brothers and were like, we're done. We're not going to release this. But then this movie, they couldn't get off the ground within the first like days of shooting they're like, you know what? Let's dump more money into this. And then the director leaves and it's like, well, we'll just bring in another director. And it's like, oh, well, the cat, the guy in the lead dropped out. All right, well, we'll get another guy in the lead. Oh, he's only here for 40% of the film. Whatever, just move him to the side roll and bring in another guy. It was like this machine that was just not gonna be stopped no matter what the hurdles were in the way. 
And it kind of felt that way watching it where I'm like, I don't know what kind of movie this movie wants to be. I don't know if it's supposed to be rooted in the nature of its science fiction because it does have its roots there in like its gene splicing uh, base. But then it's very much not about the science so much. Like there's very little science involved. And then it becomes sort of a horror movie for a little bit. And then it doesn't really stay there either. And then it becomes a thriller and then just sort of ends as like a drama, uh, like a retrospective on the, the 90 minutes that came before the final five minutes. And I just, I still was amazed to see that I, I could watch the entire movie. I get down to the last like 10 minutes and I was like, did anything get resolved at all? Or did we just watch like a complete disaster? And I think both things can be true. And I think I can still enjoy it being a disaster, much like I enjoyed Wild Wild West, just being a complete train wreck. Yeah, no, well said. Uh, you know, they're basically left to start over again with some sort of uh, of their own government about to take place. You know, he said, you know, he was emphatic, no more people. Right. No, no more scientists, no more doctors. We'll, we'll solve this on our own. Yeah, and I like that narrative of the animal hybrid people being able to finally like claim their place because that's something that is echoed a few times throughout the movie of like they don't know what they are. You know, they're not men. They some of them kind of rise to want to be considered men, and that's what hyena guy deals with on his ascension to the throne and his you know his quick plummet off of that summit but the guy the priest i don't remember the character's name but ron perlman's character he was always much more level-headed and while he looked up to moreau as like the father of their civilization that's a much more balanced way to look at it whether you view him as a god or not it's much easier to just see that he still gave them life in a way that they didn't have it before and like at least being able to accept that gives him a position at the end of the film where he can he can easily well not easily but he can confidently say that this is something that we want to do on our own now like we don't want help from people like we don't want help from you we don't want any more scientists like we need to figure this out on our own and we've got enough here to make that work. And that's a, it's an actually a pretty powerful message considering everything that transpired right up until that point. One of the things I like to do to close out the show is we look at some of the worst things that have been said about this film. And the negative reviews are always interesting because a lot of them like to pull their punches and then some of them don't so i'm going to pick a couple here and we'll see oh, i'm sure we can find some good ones <laughs> but yeah so the lowest score that i have here from medic meta score is uh 25 and the highest is a 60 the aggregate score is a 37 so that's really bad uh this movie is a 4.5 on imdb and yeah. typically my line of demarcation for like if i haven't seen this movie and i want to give it a chance how low will I go? And typically I'm like five and a half, five is probably the line where I start to cut movies off. 
And this movie being a sub five is surprising because although it's bad, it's got its moments. See, and... the, the, way, uh, the, the way I approach it is I know to me it's, it's got Brando, it's yeah. got Kim. So I would probably see it regardless, no matter what. Uh, you know, if it's got something you like, be it the director, be it the actors, be it, uh, you know, I'm also a Kevin Smith fan. I, I already know I'm going to see anything he'll ever do. So no matter how bad it gets, right, you know, the, the more than one reason to watch it, obviously, I guess. But Hey, that's fair enough. Um, let's see. We're going to go with Keith, Keith Phipps from the AV Club. He says that as a science fiction movie, the latest Moreau is sub schlock. As a thinly veiled post-colonial allegory, it's dangerously close to racism. Either way, it's one of the most ridiculous movies in a ridiculous summer. So he acknowledges that this is this movie is ridiculous, even at a time of ridiculous films. And I think that's one of its more redeeming qualities is that it is that crazy. And like I said about it being just a machine where it was like, this movie is getting made, whether you like it or not. And right. to your point, like the billing that we saw in the trailer was very heavily focused on Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer being part of it. And it's like, it really doesn't even matter what else is going on. Like there's an island, there's monsters, there's two guys you like, just sit down and watch it and enjoy it. Which again, led to my surprise when Kilmer was killed. I don't want to say early on, but was still a lot of the film left to go. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. They're both yeah. dead. Thulis has to carry this. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see had like Bruce Willis been the lead in this film because with uh, both Kilmer and Brando in supporting roles, like you have your A-list talent in supporting roles and then you get a guy who is a good actor but a character actor in the lead. And so it would have been very interesting to see had they had that extra piece of star power connected to that lead role and if it would have changed anything if it would have changed the dynamic between the characters i don't know but it's a movie that in a parallel universe exists as a very different piece of cinematic history uh let's go to san francisco examiner i'll jump up a couple so she gave it a 38 and this is barbara schulgasser she said sympathizing with moreau would be difficult in any case but with Brando in the role, there is the added obstacle of needing to suppress laughter every time he opens his pursed mouth. So she says pursed mouth. So I'm curious if she too noticed that like the movement of his mouth was very particular in the film. Mm -hmm. But despite Marlon Brando being dressed in mumus and wearing like the most ridiculous headgear, he's got a, a cylinder on his head at one point filled with ice because it's so hot. And most of the time I'm looking at him, he reminded me of the way Homer Simpson is dressed in the episode of The Simpsons where he gains a bunch of weight and wears that floral muumuu. And still, I felt that every time he was on screen, he was just still super compelling. Like, me too. I, I don't know what it was, but like even in an instance where he's maybe the most ridiculous he's ever been on camera, he still has uh, a lot of magnetism to him. And even in the star scenes, power. With, yeah, even in the scenes with him and Kilmer and everybody, like he still uh, just commands your attention more than anybody else in the scene. And so even if you were to say that, like, this is one of his worst performances or whatever, uh, 
that says a lot about how good of an actor he is and how incredible his screen presence is to still be that commanding, even with something that you would say is not good work from him potentially. You know, I, I still I felt like that when I watched. You've probably seen the score with De Niro and yeah. right, and his limited screen time in that film is you just knew you were watching somebody who commanded your attention. A simple part-time little gig there for that movie. Yeah, and I think that probably makes his death in this film a lot more impactful in that, like, you don't expect him to die. And right. it's like, I never saw the original. I didn't read the book, so I don't know, like, how that exactly transpires. But just, like, knowing film and knowing Brando and, like, him being involved in this project and him really being the first person who believed in Richard Stanley's vision and co-signed the idea and basically got it through the, the pre-production stages, it was just very alarming to see him die and die gruesomely on screen. But again, that just says a lot about who Brando is and the kind of respect he commands within the film industry. Uh, let's move up a couple into the yellow. Uh, let's see, James Berardinelli. I've read a couple of his before. This is for real views. It says, insultingly frankenheimer concludes the movie with a short sermon about the fine line that separates man from beast if the director actually wanted to get this point across he should have worked it into the film rather than tacking it on as an afterthought it is after all an integral aspect of the source material that it has been so thoroughly excised from the main plot isn't the island of Dr. Moreau's only problem, but it's symptomatic of the flawed mindset that went into planning this occasionally incoherent and ultimately disappointing motion picture. And I mean, that's one of the things we just talked about a few minutes ago is how I felt that in the very beginning and the very end, they make a point to like say that this is the theme of the film essentially. And then, you know, trying to bridge that gap is difficult when you're not the guy who initially wrote the script and you're not the guy who is initially the director so it feels disingenuous to blame frankenheimer for it but he definitely brought a different style to set that a lot of people since this production have spoken ill of but in a lot of instances where you bring in a director to finish another director's work you don't end up with the best product I'm just trying to think of you know things where I've, where somebody's come in and uh, the only thing that's coming to mind is it was a Superman film like that I believe right uh, yeah Justice League went down like that um, Avengers uh, as well I believe or no it was Josh Whedon sorry who stepped in to fix uh, not fix but finish Zack Snyder's original version of Justice League and although I, I remember hearing a lot of things about uh, Star Wars Rogue One being uh, Maybe not switching directors, but getting a lot of rewrites or something. And I don't know. I was quite happy with the way that finished myself. Fair enough. I liked Rogue One, too. We'll go to David Anson from Newsweek, who gave it a 60, which is the highest score of the ones that are listed here. It says, Brando's performance is enormous fun, but it's not just a joke. He's hilarious and gently mesmerizing at once. And director John Frankenheimer savvily adjusts the tone of his movie to fit Brando's daft brilliance. Let's face it, this is one nutty movie. It's not exactly good, but I sure had a good time. And I think that's probably the most fair way to put it, because if you're a director who's stepping in to finish someone else's work, and part of that job is working with the guy who helped 
champion the other director's work like what are you going to do it's marlon brando if he wants to have fun in this role and play it the way that he wants to play it am i going to tell him no so i think allowing him to be this kind of weird character who even when he like looks through the microscope in the one scene where he's actually doing science related work he's just kind of like oh yeah hmm, look at that it's yellow and then yeah <laughs> not just move on it's like that's the least scientific thing you could say after looking through a microscope just like mm, yellow <laughs> <laughs> uh no i agree yeah not very convincing not but seriously i still had a good time with this movie like you know, it definitely has its issues, and I, I have to watch that documentary now, and I'm going to look it up because I don't want to get the name wrong. Uh, you know, as fast as as fast as fast Val Kilmer rose, he kind of uh, descended uh, pretty pretty steadily, too, you know, before, even before his cancer took hold, obviously. But uh, th- there's probably this movie that started it. You know, yeah, sometimes you do one bad one, and it's like that's all it takes. I, I, to, yeah, and then you know you happen to do uh, one or two or two in a row or something. And although right after this, I believe was Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah, they were both released in '96. Yeah, Ghost in the Darkness was really good. Yeah, I did really like Ghost in the Darkness. I still have fondness for it, and I mean, even after this, he went on to do uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He did the Saint never really took off like he had hoped. No, and I, I didn't, but I, I understand did. why he took it, though. He took it, and he was ho- also, I remember reading, you know, they were hoping to make a trilogy out of it. Mm, but, you know, it didn't go as well as he planned either. So, I don't and know. Then, He's, then he was Batman, and that also kind of backfired for him as well. Uh, that whole movie, uh, I'm not a, just the style of that movie, I'm not a fan of what Joel Schumacher did to the, to the franchise there, but Exactly. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. So it's like you had two really expensive films come out fairly close together and both of them were, you know, far below expectations. And, you know, that's enough to turn some people off from casting you in the lead. And it's not a knock on Kilmer or his level of skill or anything, but if people didn't like you as Batman, then there's a good chance that they may stay away from some other project that you were attached to within uh, the same time frame. Uh, let's see, Saint was 97. I know, as I said, when I was saying earlier that I, uh, some there's some films I'm just know I'm gonna watch because I like an actor, an actor or two or the director. Right after, you know, when he was played Batman and his star was really high, he took the role in Heat as a, yeah. uh, not a first, not a second, but a third. Uh, but he said, it's De Niro, it's Pacino, it's Michael Mann. I'm not saying no. And, you know, so same same, same train of thought there. Yeah, and he went on to make a lot of movies after that that I liked as well. I mean, I liked Red Planet, Salt and Sea, uh, Wonderland, he was very good in. Red Planet's another one that did not do well, though. You could, you could do yeah. that. Yeah. True. Yeah, um, Bang Bang wasn't until 2005, and he right. second fiddle to Robert Downey Jr. there, but it was that, a good role. Their chemistry was uh, great in that film. It was. Mm. And it was nice to see him, honestly, in uh, Top Gun. I'm glad that they found a way to make that work. Yes. Well, we've reached the end. I think, unless 
unless there's something that you want to add. Oh, there's a good question I got for you. For people that haven't seen this film, is there a film that is maybe somewhere in the neighborhood that you could say if you liked that film then maybe you're willing to give this one a chance no um (laughs) i guess well being the classic film fan that i am the very first film version of this it was in the 30s with charles lawton uh island of lost souls and and uh i don't remember it to a t but i saw that and, and i would just recommend somebody go back and watch that um yeah no i can't think of a movie now you know in the same time period that would parallel it but a couple different versions of the island of dr moreau that i would recommend watching yeah there was a 1977 right. film as well and i'm not going to yeah. give one that's identical but one that I'm going to say that for some reason it reminded me of was Waterworld. And Waterworld is another film that had a massive budget that relied heavily on its star power that had great production design that just didn't land with people. And apparently the star was being a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also got a director fired, no? Uh, sorry, what was that? Did, did Kevin Costner also get a, the director fired on that film? The first one by any chance? Uh, that's a good question. Um, ringing a bell now that you mentioned that. I, yeah, I just know that I liked Waterworld a lot more than most people did at the time. And I still like it a lot. And I still love going to the Universal Studios uh, Waterworld. I, I enjoyed Waterworld. They have there. It uh, was the most expensive film ever made at the time. Yep. And it was unable to recoup its budget. Let's see. I don't see anything about Costner having anyone fired here, but I would have to do a lot more reading on that. Mm -hmm. It was more that for some reason there was a surge of like ocean scenery and like, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau starts with a life raft and then they're on what looks like a pirate ship in the middle of the ocean. They're going to this island. So there's a lot of visual stuff where I just felt like, was this a theme all of a sudden? Like, you know, nautical elements in the mid nineties were coming back and maybe there was more curiosity about what was going on at sea. So they invested more in that, but the parallels of it being super expensive, loaded with star power, underperforming, but also still being very visually uh, dazzling films and very ambitious stories to tell at that time. And they came out within a year of each other too. So if you like Waterworld, maybe check it out. But the documentary that we were talking about earlier is called Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. And I mean, that's it. It tells you all the stories of what was going on on this production and interviews with a bunch of people that were part of the production as well and let's see who actually signed up for the cast oh it looks like i mean it may be um just like stock footage but val kilmer david thulis uh richard stanley is interviewed in it or at least he's in it uh Feruza bulk so there's probably a mix of some stuff behind the scenes as well and if you're really curious of val kilmer's perspective you could probably find the clips from his documentary val where he shows uh, some of the scenes that were 
going on or some of the moments that were happening on set for this movie. And I know one of them that sticks out to me is that he, uh, Val Kilmer was recording personally with his camera at the time and refused to put the camera down until the director yelled action. So there was just kind of like a pissing contest going on with the power structure there, but I really want to see this documentary now and I'm going to have to find a way to see it. And I'll probably get in touch with you guys in the film club about it afterwards. But I told Donald, I was like, if you haven't seen this one, like it's absolutely crazy and it's worth seeing for that alone. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and watch this documentary for sure. Well, Keith, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm really glad that you reached out to me and picked a movie that uh, most people probably haven't even seen. And the ones who have seen it probably remember it as a disaster. So this is a bold choice on your part. I really appreciate that. And uh, it was a lot of fun getting to watch this again and getting to sit down and talk to someone who actually has a high opinion of this film. One other oddity. I don't know if you, when we started this, I don't know if you recall, I told you I had the movie running yes. while we were. When you talked about Val Kilmer's death scene, that's what was on my TV. <laughs> and when you said we've reached the end, that's when the credits rolled in the movie. Wow, it's like we perfectly went along with the movie. It was, uh, it was pretty funny. We did. We started at nine. We're at hour and 33 minutes right now. So timed it out very, very well. And uh, I did learn one little thing on the IMDb notes that I've never noticed before. Mm-hmm. The very last scene with like two two words of dialogue left in the narration, you see a dolphin pop up out of the water. <laughs> that, that that really happened, and I was like, oh, I never noticed that. I got I had to go back and watch it, and sure as shit, it's there, right on the right side of David Thewlis. A dolphin comes out of the water. Interesting. And then they just they left it in. They're like, hey, that looks like it's whatever that's there. worth, which is nothing, of course. But hey, that's fun. why we do this, man, to to comb through the fine details of all these bad movies we love. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. You too, Keith. Have a good night. You too, Nick. Bye. Thank you once again to Keith for being my guest and for bringing such an interesting movie to the table. And make sure to keep an eye out for Keith's upcoming show, Hollywood and Vine, where he'll be talking about classic wines and classic movies. And my sincerest thanks to all of you who took the time to listen to this episode. I know your time is valuable and you have a lot of options when it comes to your podcast. So if you spent that time with us, I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can reach me at nick at com, or you can reach out to me at Bad Movies We Love on Twitter for the time being, and that's Bad Movies We Love with a L-U-V. This show is an extension of com, and the podcast is recorded, edited, mixed, produced right here in the home studio by yours truly. So until next time, stay safe, be well, and have fun no matter how you get your movies.